I bring you greetings from New Community Church. Uh, We consider you to be partners with us in the ministry and the things of the Lord that we all do, hopefully unto his glory. And so I want to begin this message today uh, with prayer. I know we just prayed, but uh, there's a special reason why I want to lift this before the Lord. Let's do that. Well, gracious Heavenly Father, now at this time, when we get ready to present the Word of God, uh, I pray that all of our hearts are wide open for the implanting of truth. I pray, O Heavenly Father, that we would bear much fruit because we have been here today and because you have spoken to us through your Word, you have challenged us, you have uh, exhorted our wills to be conformed to your will, and we might demonstrate the change that Christ has made in us. And so, Lord, as I deliver this message, which is personal, Lord, indeed, it's a personal message. Uh, Just let us be reminded of this great truth that no one but you can transform lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You have an outline that has been contained in your program. If you have it and you'd like to take notes, you can. But the other thing is I have in the left-hand column of that outline the passages that I'm going to reference tonight. Uh, Normally, I just take one selected text, and it has, you know, Pastor does, Pastor Jeff does. I usually just take that one text and go through it. But there's several texts that I'm going to point to you, and we'll expound on all of them uh, because of the nature of the message today. I remember laying in bed for three days. I was having a very, very hard time breathing, and I thought that this may be the end. I was a young man at the time, maybe 21, 22, and what had happened to me is I had taken an illegal drug, psilocybin. Psilocybin is made with mushrooms, so the street name for it is mushrooms or magic mushrooms. And to give you a bit of a context, I was playing professionally as a musician in those days. My greatest hope and dream was to be able to be involved with a, a band, a rock band, that was very, very good, highly professional, and that dream came true. But although I reached my goal, I was suffering from something I called destination sickness. That's when you arrive at a life ambition, you think it's going to bring fulfillment, and the end result is emptiness. And that's part of the reason why I started to turn to the drugs. A lot of it had to do with the culture at that time. Everybody in the rock world at that time was somehow engaged in various forms of intoxicants, and so I was not any different than anybody else in those days. But I remember I was empty. I had achieved a major goal in my life at a young age. I was reaping great financial benefits, and yet I was empty. I think this is why so many of the people in that world turn to drugs and alcohol. Because everyone assumes that when you reach a certain objective, a certain goal, that there is some sort of fulfillment, or your life 
can be filled by what only God could fill. And so you began to feel a pain inside of you. It was at this point that Cindy said, on the end of the bed, I can still visualize it in my mind, and she said to me, things have to change. We have to change, or our life together will most likely come to an end. And I agreed with her. I agreed. I thought we needed some sort of change. We were still newlyweds, so to speak. And if we continued in the pattern that we were in, I'm sure that it would have resulted in the termination of our marriage, which till this day I would deeply, deeply regret. So we both agreed. Our attitudes, our life actions, our mindset needed to go undergo a radical transformation. Things desperately needed to be made new. But where do you begin? How do you start? Not knowing exactly how to bring about a change in our lives, we thought that perhaps if we return to the religious denomination in which we were raised, maybe went back to that, maybe there's some sort of spiritual spark that would have been ignited and may have been the pathway to fulfillment and happiness. So we went back to that denomination, and really it was more of the same. It didn't make any difference. And so we stopped that. A fellow musician, and he was quite good, by the way, he told me about a guru on Rush Street in Chicago. We were raised in Chicago. And he said, this guru will tell you what life's all about. I'll make an appointment for you. So I went with him to Rush Street because, again, we're looking. Cindy and I, we're trying to figure out how do you change your life? How do you make it different than what it is? So I go in and the guy says, go and sit in front of him. He'll talk to you. And for the longest time, he just sat there with candles burning around him and he didn't say anything. And by the way, I know what stoned looks like. He was stoned. (laughs) And finally he looked at me and he said this, watch out for cats, man. I said, pardon me? He said, watch out for cats. And I said, why? He said, because cats will look into your eyes and they'll steal your soul. I was convinced that the cats looked into his eyes and stole his brain. So I left. And I'm getting disappointed because remember, again, we're on a journey. We're we're looking for something that's going to make a difference in our life. And that didn't work. So we heard that in our building, there was a Mr. Theodore who taught the Bible. So we said, why don't we invite him? Maybe something he might teach us will ignite that spark that brings us to the kind of life we want to live. And we started meeting with him. But he was saying a lot of strange things. He was saying, for example, that Jesus is not God. He was saying things like, to Cindy... He said, if you're ever in an accident and your children are hurt 
and they need a blood transfusion, you can't have them get that blood transfusion because God says you cannot drink the blood. So after a while, we asked Mr. Theodore, uh, what's the name of your church? And he said, Kingdom Hall. He was a Jehovah Witness. We didn't know that. We didn't even know what a Jehovah Witness is. But we knew that whatever he was teaching us was very, very strange. And so we asked him not to come back. Technically speaking, and I want you to get this, Cindy and I were looking for one of you. Because you have the answer. There's plenty of people like that out there in the world. You know that? There's plenty of people that thought that a certain job would be the fulfillment in their life. A certain relationship would bring fulfillment in their life. Some sort of professional achievement would bring fulfillment in their life. And it hasn't. And they're out there wandering around looking for some hope. So after a while, we sort of gave up on the spiritual journey. What we did not know at that time is that the transformation of one's life requires a radical change of heart and mind, which would lead to a brand new direction of life with new values and priorities and new ambitions. This change of heart and mind is not the product of just adopting a new perspective of life. It is not the product of a newly energized self-image. It's not the product of simply getting a new job, a new vocation, a new place to live. It is not the product of a positive mental attitude. The transformation of one's life, listen to me folks, requires divine intervention. It is God who can change your life. And so this evening, what I want to do is, I sh I'll share more of our story as we go along, is I want to raise and answer biblically three important questions about this matter of transformation. So if you got your outline, let's begin with the first one. What is the cause? That's the word that you want to fill in. What is the cause of transformation? Now I said just, just a moment ago that the transformation of one's life is the product of God intervening into your life. Where God takes you from the realm of spiritual death and places you in the realm of spiritual light. Where God takes you from darkness and brings you into light. Where God takes you from being a child of the devil and makes you an adopted child of God. What a great privilege, by the way. A radical transformation of life requires the experience of regeneration. Where the Spirit of God imparts life to your soul that was dead in its trespasses and sins and creates in you a brand new disposition that bends your heart toward knowing and doing the will of God. In Titus chapter 3, matter of fact, we should look there in Titus chapter 3 first just to remind ourselves of that work of the Spirit, marvelous work. I'll begin in verse 1. 
of chapter 3, remind them to be subject to the rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable and gentle, showing ever consideration for all men, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, to save, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. So in other words, that's what you are when you are captured in the realm of spiritual death. That's what you are. Verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, that would be in Christ, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Mercy, by the way, is not only unmerited compassion. Mercy is this. It's God not treating you as your sins deserve. That's mercy. I have not been treated as my sins deserve. My sins deserve that I have a destiny of eternal separation of God from God in the lake of fire. But he reached in, he intervened, and he changed that destiny. But reading on, he says, By the washing of regeneration, palingenesia means born a second time, for you to be born again, if you will, and the renewing, or that's being made new by the Holy Spirit. So what changes you, what transforms you, is the work of the Spirit of God in that process called regeneration, being born a second time. And this can only happen when a person repents of their sins, changes their mind, radical U-turn in thinking, recognizes themselves as being hopeless sinners who cannot save themselves. And they turn to God humbly, and put their total trust, their exclusive confidence in the death and resurrection of Christ and His saving work alone. That's the essence of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the gospel is this. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and He was buried. But then the good news is He rose again on the third day, conquering over sin and death. The transformation of one's heart and mind and the trajectory of one's life is a miracle. One time a guy told me at our church when I was preaching at New Community, he said, well, your church doesn't believe in miracles, do you? And I said, yes, we do. And he said, what do you mean? I said, every born-again person sitting in that church is a miracle. Every born-again believer, that's a miracle. I want to show you that. Look in Ephesians chapter 2. Well, you can also look on the left side of your notes. Ephesians chapter 2. I love this passage because Paul was describing the Ephesians first in their pre-conversion state when they were lost. And as I'm reading that, just look at how hopeless that condition is. So it begins in 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Um, the verb tense would put it this way, you were be being dead. Spiritual death, you were physically alive. But you were spiritually dead. You know what the word dead is in the Greek? Dead. <laughs> dead. 
unable, incapacitated, captured, bondage, spiritual death. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. In other words, your sinful pattern was developed in your lifestyle according to the course of the world. In other words, what set your life view when you were dead, be being dead? It's the fallen world in which you exist. It is that ordered system of thinking with its perverted theology and its convoluted morality and its twisted philosophy. I mean, it tells you things like this. There is no such thing as truth. And now it tells you there's no such thing as reality. When you have a world that tells you there's no truth, you, you can imagine instantly reality is going to take over. And it's going to be considered reality. So you have people, Congress people, saying there's 64 genders. The Bible says there's two. You know what I mean? Or that you can identify. There's, there's a, a person in a high school near me who identifies as a rabbit and comes to school with the nose and the ears of a rabbit. And everybody in the school, everybody in authoritative positions have to adjust to that. There's a, a school district in Illinois that's currently being sued because the young boy identifies as a cat. And he wants a litter box to be put in the washroom for him. So we're in a crazy... The world's nuts, right? It's nuts. Come on, let's admit it. It's crazy. And that's what used to govern your thinking. It's one of the reasons on April 15th, this coming April 15th, I'm going to let the, the IRS, the new 87,000 people who are IRS agents, I'm going to let them know that I identify as a non-tax-paying American citizen. <laughs> and if they make any fuss, you know what I'm going to tell them? Who are you to judge? So you were governed, we were all governed by this world and its fallen condition. Let's read on. So you followed the course of the world, verse 2, according to the prince of the power of the air. You know, the Bible says that Satan is the god of this world. That he's not the god of the created world. We know who he is. But he is the god of the mindset of fallen people, that collective thinking that comes from the base nature of fallen and sinful people. He's the God of that world. And then he goes on and he says, and um, you are the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, that spirit of rebellion. Verse 3, and among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. The crosshairs of God's condemning wrath was on you. So look at that condition. You were be being dead. Your thinking was informed by the fallen world in which you existed which functions under the authority of Satan. And there was a spirit of rebellion let loose in your life. And God's 
judgment was focused on you, ready to fire. Ready to fire. And then verse 4. But God. But God. Doesn't say, but you. You realize the error of your way. You decided that you were going to make a trip to the Himalayas and search for spiritual reality and change your life. No. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You don't belong there. But by the mercy and the grace of God, that's where you're at. You who are be being dead, following the world, functioning under Satan's rule, functioning with the spirit of rebellion, you now are seated with Christ. And if that doesn't ring your bell, your clapper is broken. That's a magnificent truth. Verse 7, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, we can become a showcase of God's grace and mercy. For the angels to look at us and say, how merciful, how gracious is God that he would save these people. And then he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no man may boast. I love that. You, when I was studying the book of Revelation, uh, I, I never found anybody when they would give me a glimpse of heaven. I, I didn't find this guy named Larry who was walking around telling everybody in heaven of the great things that he did that earned him heaven. Every person in heaven from every tribe and every tongue and every nation were praising the lamb who was slain for them. There's no boasting. No boasting in salvation. It's a gift from God. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13, it says something very similar. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us of all our transgressions. Now, folks, do you understand this? Because of what Christ had done for you and the sufficiency of his cross work and that mighty resurrection, you are, those of you who repent and believe, you are forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, and future. Did you hear that? Let me say that again. You are forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. Yeah, okay. All right. I'll just move on then. <laughs> And all of this comes from God. I want you to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble." Just let me stop you there. That calling he's talking about is the effectual call of God. 
where he quickens you to life. And he grants you, he, in, he intervenes into your life, into that condition of spiritual death. And he grants to you the repentance and faith that leads to salvation. It's a divine summons. Verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen and the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. This is the second time we've read that, right? Nobody's going to boast because salvation, as the song so accurately stated, salvation is of God from beginning to end. So that in verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, and he's quoting Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In the outworking of divine providence, a couple of women were going through a nearby neighborhood just south of Midway Airport in the city of Chicago. And they were passing out programs from their church. And they happened to come to my mother-in-law's house. And they were inviting the ladies that they would greet. They would show them the program and they were inviting them to a Bible study. My mother-in-law was not saved, but she knew that our marriage was in trouble. So she asked them to stay because Cindy was going to be visiting her shortly. And these ladies stayed. And they invited Cindy to a Bible study. They were studying the Gospel of John. And Cindy consented to go. And she went several days in a row. And one day, when she couldn't sleep, she went into the bathroom. She didn't go in the living room, because if you turn the light on in the living room, it would shine in on the baby in the baby's room. And what do mothers never want to do in the middle of the night? Wake up the child. So she went into the bathroom and started reading, once again, the story of the crucifixion of Christ in the Gospel of John. And as a result of that, she came to realize that she would have been crying out, crucify him, crucify him, just like everyone else. She came to grips with being a sinner and needed to be saved and saw what Christ graciously did in her behalf. And she entrusted the salvation of her soul to Christ that night. I had just come in from playing at some nightclub. And I just got to bed and she came into the bedroom rather excitedly. And she shook me and she said, something wonderful happened to me while I was in the bathroom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and she started trying to tell me about the discovery that she had made about the salvation she had in Christ. And I said, tell me about it in the morning. Now this woman, having believed she wanted to go to church on Sunday morning. She wanted to go to church on Sunday evening. She wanted to go to church on Wednesday evening. 
and she wanted to go to church on Thursday morning. Back in that day, ladies, miniskirts were popular. Suddenly, she didn't have the miniskirts anymore. Her skirts were below the knee. So I'm wondering, what is going on with this woman? So I sit her down and I said this, Tell me, do you love God more than you love me? She said, yes. And she said, but because I love God more than I love you, there's a new way that I love you. And I said, that's it. That's it. I want to see your priest, rabbi, guru, sage. I didn't know what to call him. But I want to see this guy. And I can poke holes, I said, in this stuff. She said, you know what? I'm willing to make an appointment, but you cannot embarrass me. Which was a smart statement on her part. And so he showed up on that Tuesday night. Doorbell rang, I answered. And back in those days, we used to say, peace. Remember that? Back in the 60s, we were amazing people. Do you know that we could say wow backwards and forwards? Peace. Don't worry about a thing. We're in charge of your nation right now. So I said, peace. And he said, one way. I said, one way? He said, there's only one way to have peace. So he got my attention. And he was everything I thought he would be. Black suit, white socks, big Bible. So he walked in, long-haired, freaky, musician-looking dude. Um, and he sat down on the couch with me. And the most amazing thing is every time I asked him a question, he would say, you know what, let's see what the Bible says. And he'd find the passage, and he'd turn it around, and he'd say, well, why don't you read that portion right there? And the most amazing thing is he never said to me, this is what I believe, or this is what my church believes. He said, this is what the Bible says. After three hours, three hours, he said, is there any other questions you have? And I said, no. He said, is there any reason why you cannot receive Christ as your Savior right now? I said, I suppose not. He grabbed me by the arm, pulled me down on my knees with him. He prayed a nice prayer. He said, you just tell Jesus that you repent of your sins and you believe in him and trust in him as your Savior. And so that's exactly what I did that night. Now, I know the conversion experiences are different for people. Mine was similar to the Apostle Paul. It was a radical change. A completely different direction. It was instantaneous. I have an insatiable hunger for God's Word, to know God's Word, and for others to know God's Word. And now I've been saved almost 50 years? Is that right? That can't be. You're only 49. You, 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 so you tell me all the time. So I've been saved a long time. But I, I have the same hunger till this day. I can't get enough of God's Word. One month later, I'm in the office of a Jewish manager of our rock group, who also was a lawyer, 
and I'm asking to be released from the contract. And he said, why? I said, because not only do our musical instruments have amplifiers, sin has amplifiers. I've never seen it like I do now. I can't work in this environment. He said, well, why can't you play bass and rhythm guitar and love Jesus? I said, I just can't do it. He graciously let me out of a long-term contract. And then I started going to church. We went to this newer church because we had made a move. And I just could not take a... Every, every growth level opportunity that they had at church, I went. I would have went to the women's study, but they wouldn't let me in. <laughs> I did show up to a deacon meeting. And the reason I did is because I thought they were studying the Bible. And they said, no, we don't study the Bible. No, they didn't say that. <laughs> they explained to me, no, this meeting is for something else. But why did I do that? Because I had been transformed. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, what? He's a new creation. The old things pass away. And new things come. And that's exactly what happened to me. The things of my former life passed away, and the new things of new life in Christ kept on coming. Now, I, I didn't achieve perfection when I came to know Christ. I had a brand new direction. But I've never achieved moral perfection. I wish I could. That's not until the next life. But boy, did things ever change in me. My desire to serve the Lord. We started a Bible study with maybe four or five teenagers from our church. Before long, it turned into 40 and then 80. We had kids under our dining room table, up our stairs. And I got a telephone call from the elders. And the elders wanted to see me. I didn't even know who the elders were. I just heard that there was these guys who were leaders called elders. I went to see them. And uh, they said to me, have you ever considered ministry? And I said, well, I said, I'd love ministry. I said, but I got a wife. And at that time, now two kids, two children and a mortgage. And I don't have any education whatsoever for ministry. They said, OK, this is what we'll do. We'll match your current salary. But we'll send you to school. So that's what they did. I told them I'd pray about it. I said, I'll pray about it. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing, folks. That's flat out amazing. So I applied to Moody first, Moody Bible Institute. The registrar called me on the phone, said, Mr. Marshall, usually we don't take anybody who isn't at the top part of their graduating class from high school. And I'm always joking. So I said, why don't you just turn the list upside down? I'll be real close to the top. <laughs> and he said, no, the reason that we're going to accept you is because of your elders' review and recommendations. We're going to accept you for that reason. But when you enter Moody, you'll be on academic probation. And once again, I can't keep my mouth shut. I said, good, I needed a major anyways, academic probation. <laughs> He didn't, he never laughed at all. That's the sad thing. <laughs> so 
So I went to Moody, and I never stayed on academic probation. I absolutely loved it. Loved it. Then later on, when I went to Trinity, absolutely loved it. Many, many years after that, one of the elders who made that decision came because he was doing a business trip here in St. Louis. And he came to New Community Church during the week. And he walked into the church auditorium and he wept. Now, I don't know if he wept like, oh, no, what did we do? (laughs) Or I think it was because he was astonished at what God does. When God transforms a life. One important truth that I learned from this experience is that the transformation of your life is not a matter of you changing or reforming your life in order to come to God. It's not that. It's not that at all. You come to God and he will transform you. You come as you are. So that's just one question that we've answered. And I'm sure you're hungry. So let's go to number two real quick. What is the fruit of a transformed life? Well, the fruit of new life in Christ is not, as I said earlier, the attainment of moral perfection. It's living in a brand new direction with a brand new disposition that's bent toward doing the will of God. We've already noted that when you become uh, in Christ, you're a brand new creation. By the way, that's why there's no such thing as a changeless conversion. You cannot come to Christ at the mighty, omnipotent, powerful hand of God and remain the same. Matter of fact, I did a study on 40 things, 40 things that happen to you when you're converted. And I put that document outside, right across your welcoming table. There's another table. And you can get that and do a study of it. 40 things that happen. You are changed. You are transformed when you are in Christ. And now you'll be engaged in a lifetime process of being set apart unto God. What was ignited in my life was that assortment of new values and direction and choices and conduct. I had a brand new GPS for my life. And as I mentioned, this insatiable hunger for God's word and knowing God's word. This new transforming impact on my life and my heart caused me, as I mentioned, to show up whenever I can to learn more about the Bible. I wanted to learn so much. I had a new value to be with God's people and to worship the Lord with you. I had a strong value for the application of God's truth to my life in response to the wonderful grace and mercy I had received. I had a strong desire to love God's people and to place their interest ahead of my own. Where did that come from? I never, ever could have ever imagined getting up early in the morning on a Sunday to go to church. And now I practically live at church. I'm there all the time. And that's because of what God has done in me. Essentially, I had a new nature. The old nature was put to death. I had a new nature with new practices 
with a love for certain spiritual disciplines, like prayer, the study of God's word, the worship of God, giving a faithful witness, fellowshipping with the people of God, establishing spiritually advantageous relationships, which I still have till this day. So that's the fruit. Now the fruit of this transformation, the fruit is the product, isn't it? The fruit is not the root of your salvation, it's the fruit, it's the product. These things happen to me because of the change that God made in my heart. So let's move quickly to the third question. What is at the core of a transformed life? Folks, what is at the core of a transformed life is this, a brand new nature. Peter says it's a divine nature. Amazing. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, he says this, seeing that his divine power, another term for divine power is omnipotence. God has unlimited power. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Do you know what everything is in the Greek? Everything, yes. He's given us everything we need for eternal life, for abundant life, and for godliness. What is godliness? Godliness is when your devotion to God is brought with you into every arena of life. Where you emulate the behavior of your father, no matter where you're at. Godliness is visible, tangible devotion. And God has given you, through omnipotence, everything you need to be that. To be godly. To live a life that is set apart unto God, set apart from this world. So he's given you everything, he says, to life and godliness. And going on in verse 3, middle of it, through the true knowledge of him. It's through the knowledge of God that's revealed to us in scripture. Who called us by his own glory and excellence. Again, that effectual call. That, that divine summons that overcomes the sinfulness of your soul. And grants to you repentance and faith. Verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. That's all the, by these is referring to the glory and the excellence. The magnificent promises are the promises all pertain to what is promised to us in the salvation of our soul. So that by them, now watch this, you may become partakers of a divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You have a new nature. You have a new desire. You have new ambitions that flow from the new nature. And the new nature is at the very core of your transformation. By this divine life, we are supplied both with the desire and the power to do God's will. That's amazing. He's not asking you to do His will, now that you're converted. He's not asking you to do His will by your own power. He's asking you to join in a partnership. Your willingness and His ability. And you could live a life that is uniquely different from the life that you used to live. 
Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God, there's godliness, by the way, has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. The new life in Christ now sets us apart. Now we can live distinguishably different from those who do not know Christ. We can be transformed. By the way, that's what makes a big difference between people who profess Christianity and people who possess Christianity. The people who profess Christianity, but there's nothing in their life to support the profession, are individuals who do not have a new nature. They don't have the conversion of the soul. Uh, let me show you from James, just James chapter 2. James, because I want you to get this. This is very important. James chapter 2 and verse 14, he says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says, he makes a profession, he says he has faith. The context is going to tell us what kind of faith. What use is it, my brethren, if someone tells us he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? So we're talking about saving faith. We're talking about a person who says, I, I possess saving faith. Um, I'm a Christian. I'm born again. I'm baptized, um, sanitized, and deodorized. <laughs> That's my profession. But what James is going to talk about is the absence of the practice that correlates with the profession, which indicates the absence of the new nature that produces it. Do you understand that? So he gives a practical illustration. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, basic necessities, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. And it, this kind of professed dead faith doesn't have works because it doesn't have the internal transformation that new nature brings. You get that? That's why that individual says, I'm a Christian. And yet there's cold words that he gives to him. Warm words, actually. Cold deeds. He doesn't give him any, any help whatsoever. And the guy just needs basic necessities. Why is that? That a person who professes to know Christ is not other-centered like Christ was. Because the nature hasn't been changed. Oh, the next one is so very clear. I want to take you down to verse 19. This is where the first one was a profession without the practice. This one is a creed without the conduct. You believe that God is one. Do you know what that is? That's the great Shema of Israel. That's the prayer that they prayed. I mean, that's the ultimate Profession of orthodoxy. 
that God is one. God is singular. God has no competition. God is self-existent. God is self-dependent. He doesn't depend upon you or me. All of that's wrapped up. He says, you believe that God is one. You are orthodox in your creed. And then he says, after that, you look at that verse, you do well. He compliments you. And then he says, the demons also believe and shudder. Why doesn't the fact that the demons understand that God is one, the great Shema, why is their only reaction shuddering? Well, because their nature hasn't changed. Their practice hasn't changed. They're still demons. They're still in pursuit of Satan's will because they're still in that rebellious condition. And it doesn't matter what they confess. Do you know that the greatest statements about the identity of Christ in the New Testament are made by demons? We know who you are. You are the Son of God. We know who you are. What do we have to do with you, O Son of God? Do you know that demons cannot become Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons? But even though they know this truth, what's the problem? No internal transformation, no new nature. And I've met so many people that say, I'm a Christian. And I'm looking, I've watched them over time. I see nothing. I see nothing. I see people that profess to be Christians and they still love the world very much. They act more like the world. That's a profession without practice. They have the label, but they don't know the Lord. One of my favorite desserts when I was younger, and I could eat whatever I want, that's no longer true. The only good thing about me now is you can tell that I'm on the level because the bubble's in the center. But one of my favorite desserts was raisin bread with nice toasted raisin bread with nice butter on it or margarine, either one. One day I came home and uh, I wanted one of those desserts so bad, so I dropped in two pieces of raisin bread toast. Soon the kitchen was filled with the aroma. And then the raisin breads popped up and I looked in the refrigerator and then there was this little plastic container and on the label of the container, it said blue bonnet margarine. That's what the label said. So I took it out and I opened it up, but something was in there that had been dead for a long time. It was gray and blue and pink and it wasn't an animal or a mouse or anything. It was grease. Apparently my wife would let it get cold or frozen or whatever so she could throw it out. But what if I said, well, okay, it's probably a new kind of margarine. The label says blue bonnet margarine. The content doesn't look like blue bonnet margarine, but the label says that. I would have had quite a surprise for some time to come. So it's not the label that matters. It's the transformation that matters. It's not perfection. I want to make sure none of you are thinking I'm saying that you need to become morally perfect. 
because you can't be morally perfect. You can be progressively set apart to God, but you're never going to be morally perfect. Not in this life. I wish that were true, as I said, but not in this life. So, here's the question for us today, obviously. You who profess to know Christ, what changes have you seen in your life? Well, I'm not looking for something major. I'm just saying what indicates that there was really a change? What indicates that there's a new nature? Now, I know that we're typically hard on ourselves. Boy, when it comes to evaluating myself, I'm pretty hard on myself. I don't know about you, but I am very hard on myself. And I don't want that necessarily to happen. Listen, the fact that you're here today on a Sunday afternoon listening to this crazy guy rant and rave is probably an indication that something new has happened in your life. (laughs) But what changes do you see? And by the way, the changes that you see give glory to God. Those differences have happened because he's transformed you. And by the way, another thing, if you're saying, well, I have not seen any change. You know, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself to see if Christ is in you. That's a good thing to do. There's nothing wrong with a self-examination. Examining your conversion against Scripture. And by the way, that's a, another practical thing that I want to challenge you with. Is in terms of your conversion, test conversion biblically. What does the Bible indicate about conversion? Because there's a lot of people that are very subjective about conversion. You know, I walked down an aisle. And I prayed a sinner's prayer. I even have a date in my Bible. Does the Bible ever say you shall know them by their date? It's the fruit. It's the transformation. It's the change. It's the difference. It's the putting away of the old self. It's the putting on of the new self. It's saying separated from the world, not isolated from the world, but separated. We can't isolate ourselves from this fallen world because there's only one job that we have to do that we do best in the world and we could not do in heaven. That's evangelize the lost. We're here to share the gospel. Let me give you this final warning. I want you to be careful of decaffeinated Christianity. Decaffeinated Christianity won't wake you up. It won't keep you up. And in the end, it won't take you up. You want the real thing. The transforming thing. The thing that made this hostile enemy of the church named Paul, Saul, instantly going from a guy who wanted to kill everybody in the church and destroy the church, he went from that to the greatest church planter the world has ever seen. Explain that to me. He went from someone who was defending Judaism to defending Christianity, the best apologist the Christian world has ever experienced. Explain that to me. Here's the explanation. 
Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things pass away, and new things come. Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to speak to this lovely church of people. And I would pray that what I shared with them today might have a special impact on them for days to come. Lord, thank you that you intervened into our lives. (laughs) There was no hope without that intervention. There was no way that we could change things. We might make some minor change changes. We might do a little self-reformation, but that self-reformation does not equal complete transformation. Only you can do that. Thank you for those who have experienced that today and can testify. And I pray that if there are any here today, Lord, you would speak to them. Where do they stand with you? And if they don't have a relationship with you, I pray that they would have one today. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.